the word of the Lord. There has been quite a bit of discussion in recent weeks about the title Queen Consort and uh, what, just what does it mean. The idea of a Queen Consort is not a, a modern one. It's been around not just uh, historically, it's been around since almost time immemorial, since uh, ancient Near East. Any self-respecting deity had a consort. It was expected. And there's a rather surprising connection between the idea of Jesus and who was perceived as his queen consort, tucked away in the readings that we've uh, touching on in Paul when he was in Athens. First of all, let me set the scene with Athens. Paul's journeys have taken him through a number of cities, through Turkey and up around Macedonia, Philippi, and now he comes down to not an enormous uh, geographically large city, but a highly prestigious city of Athens. It is uh, overseen by the Acropolis, and uh, pretty much anywhere that you move around Athens, you will still see the Acropolis high and uh, with the Parthenon um, taking its place of honour atop the, of the Acropolis. It was uh, much visited and obviously um, something that made a big statement about the connectedness between Athens and the heavens and the wisdom and philosophy that went with that. The Acropolis is a uh, um, literally a large lump of rock. Basically what the word Acropolis means is a large lump of rock um, that overlooks the city of Athens and still does today. It looks down upon the city and uh, the height is a statement in itself. It was a gathering point of people who were pursuing um, an understanding of the world, of the gods and of philosophy. And we need to remember that in the uh, ancient world, um, religion and philosophy were totally enmeshed. Um, nearly all the, the philosophies were um, centred around their understanding of Zeus and the Godhead. So it wasn't like our modern sense that there were two separate spheres, one and the same. And that was reflected in the forum. So that is the forum as it uh, stands today. Um, and you could just imagine each of those uh, foundations going up into a significant um, range of public buildings, a bureaucracy, um, a big imperial centre for the uh, administration of that Rome um, occupied at that stage, and one of the temples, the Temple of Apollos, which is uh, at one end of the forum, that was one of a whole range of shrines and temples, and that is the world in which Paul stepped. And Paul observed that you have pretty much a, a temple or a shrine for anything, any and every god that you can think of, even one to a god that you don't know. So Paul says, well, let me tell you about the god that you don't know. And Paul engages into their world in a way in which they can recognise the presence of something that they could still um, learn from 
It's important to understand just how, um, in a human sense, awesome the space was. This is the, the stoa, which has been um, rebuilt as it would have been back in Paul's day. The Stoa was the philosophical home for the Stoics, a long tradition that was uh, uh, started in Athens. And the school of the Stoics was one of their preeminent philosophical school. And around those uh, pavements and in that shaded area, the peripatetic philosophers, those who liked to walk as they talked philosophy, would wander up and down with their disciples following them and engaging with them. And we can imagine Paul entering into that space and thinking, how am I going to introduce the good news that I want to bring into that space? Paul's uh, address to the Areopagus, Paul started in a synagogue and he got people's attention as to what he was proclaiming, and I'll touch on that briefly in a minute. Um, And he was then invited to speak to the Areopagus, which was the council that oversaw the whole um, forum, in fact, over Athens as a whole, both religious and uh, intellectual and their philosophy. It's very similar to what we might describe in a modern context of a university has the university senate, which is the highest authority in a university, is the senate who has to approve the granting of uh, degrees and all the, all the authority of the, the university. Well, that was the gathering that Paul was invited to address. The Areopolis is both a, a geographic place, it's, a, it's an, a rocky outcrop that you can see here um, overlooking a, a slight dip that goes down towards the Acropolis and the Forum is down before it. The uh, Areopagus is also a, the council gathered. Um, and on top of that spot... Paul's address is still remembered and many visitors come and often will stand and read Acts 17 um, from that spot and that's the Greek text of Paul's sermon some 2,000 years later. It's not bad if someone remembers a sermon from 2,000 years ago and it's quite a uh, uh, moving moment to, to, to stand in that space. Although Paul probably wasn't up on the rocky outcrop as he spoke. He was most likely in a, uh, one of the theatres that was down below it where the council would meet. But the elite of, his, of, the, of the philosophical schools would be there. The big names, representatives of all the, uh, the philosophical views. It is where the name academy comes from, the uh, academic was based in the academy in Athens and the whole tradition of, uh, um, that comes with it. I guess in our um, British context, you might say Oxford and Cambridge is sort of a similar sort of space. There's various different schools, but regarded as the uh, um, highly high status uh, sort of attended it. And so Paul was asked to explain more about this faith, this belief that he is talking about. And it's here we can we strike some um, intriguing little details that emerge in the text. So a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers within the Areopagus, 
began to debate with Paul. That usually means that they would throw questions out. And the idea was that through Socratic testing, either the, uh, the, the foolishness, the falsehood of a statement would be revealed or truth would be revealed. So as they were very uh, um, adept at doing, not so much the uh, courtesies, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? <laughs> Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. That strike you as a little bit strange? What's strange about it? The plural. Yeah. Anyone listening to Paul, you would think, would know that he is a, an advocate of the mature Jewish faith. That there is one God. They are monotheists. But the idea that there are multiple gods would be uh, anathema to Paul and to others. How could it be that they mistook, misunderstood Paul's uh, message to be advocating God's plural? They told this because they said this about Paul because he was preaching good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The word resurrection is anastasis, which really means that you move from a static state to up. You stand, you are moving up from a static state. And anastasis is a female noun. And they misunderstood it as a female name. They would think through, well, any self-respecting God is likely to have a consort, Charles and Camilla. Jesus and Anastasis. What is interesting is that where their misunderstanding came is because Paul could barely speak about Jesus without speaking of his resurrection. That is the distinctive quality to Jesus and the message of the good news. And it's almost as if he just said Jesus and the resurrection over and again because it was just the important truth. It's interesting that there are some uh, over 20 speeches recorded in the book of Acts in a whole range of contexts before the Sanhedrin and the synagogues in various different cities and locations. Um, and each of them reflects their context quite significantly. Here, Paul was reflecting the Athenian context, talks about their philosophies, their own beliefs and how they worship other gods. The one thing that is consistent across all those differences, across those speeches, is the person of Jesus and the resurrection. Others talk about the incarnation. Others talk about the cross. Others talk about the history of Israel. Others talk about how they may have uh, persecuted prophets. All the things reflected a different context. But in every speech... It is the resurrection of Jesus that stands out. That is what makes it good news. So it's good to reflect on um, just how much we know the truth of the resurrection. We affirm it in our creeds when we say the creeds and the statements of faith. But it makes an enormous difference. The clue to it, I think, is found in this text that we had in the Gospel reading. 
John 14, the night of Jesus' betrayal, he's already gathered, washed the, the disciples' feet, spoke about this is the, the way of the kingdom. He's given them the great command, the command to love one another. He shared the Lord's Supper with them. And he said that I'm about to leave you. And in the passage that we had, he says, yeah, but you won't be alone, you won't be orphans. I will send the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will come and provide assurance to you, um, encourage you is what the word actually means, paraclete, and he'll guide you to truth. But then Jesus goes on and says, before long, the world will not see me anymore. Jesus is talking specifically about the time after his crucifixion. Jesus was not seen by any unbelievers. In John's gospel, the world is the world of unbelief those who are outside the, uh, the realm of those who are believers and followers of the kingdom. So those who are not believers or not yet believers, Jesus said, will not see me anymore. And so he wasn't seen after his resurrection. But you will see me. The, the apostles who were gathered and the believers who gathered. And I'm not going to go through all the details of how Incredible the evidence is, but it's pretty overwhelming. Over 550 people on 12 different occasions at least encountered the risen Jesus and that what transformed the movement from despair into confidence. But you will see me. But notice this last line. It really stood out for me, for, I guess for a range of reasons. But Jesus said to them, because I live, that is to say, because I will be resurrected, you also will live. Familiar words, but they are life-changing words. That is what makes our faith distinctive. Previously, when Paul was talking before the Epicureans and the Stoics, their belief systems didn't have much hope, anything to describe it. The Epicureans... There are two different philosophical schools. Epicureans were the ones who coined the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, this is as good as it's going to get. Once we get beyond life now, that's the end. They had no hope of a future life. So you may as well just party now because that's as best it's going to be. Not the most hopeful way to approach life, living in the here and the now. The Stoics' belief system was a little bit different to that, but the Stoics more looked within themselves. The Stoic equivalent in modern outlook is the New Age movement, which actually they read the Stoic handbooks, Epictetus and others, they still sell. Stoics believe, well, we can't change anything about life. If someone's going to come along and kill us, we can't, we can't stop that. It's beyond our ability to control the world around us. The only thing we control, the Stoics said, is our capacity to respond to what happens around us. No one can take my capacity to respond. You might threaten me, you might abuse me, you might deal with me harshly, you might even kill me, but you can't take my capacity to respond to it. So they retreated into themselves. The only safe place to be that I can control is my response. Everything else is out there. 
So you retreat into yourself. The classic anthem of Stoic belief in its modern guise is Simon and Garfunkel's song. I am a rock. I build walls and fortresses to protect me. I put up these walls and I shrink back into my room, into my, into my little safe place. Which is important to affirm that we have that capacity to respond. No one can take that from us. But the trouble is if we all retreat into that space, life becomes rather lonely. We become fearful of the world around us. And so Stoics were trying to hold that at a distance and said, what? Life doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what is within me. Paul says, there is a better way. Let me tell you about the other way through this person of Jesus. And so he spoke, spoke to them about Jesus and the resurrection. So when Paul advocates, because I live, you also will live, the words of Jesus, the promise of Jesus, he is speaking into a space that is for every time and place. This wasn't just bound to a discussion with the Epicureans and the Stoics. This speaks into our own world, into our own experience of life, as we recognise that we cannot control the world around us. Things will happen that are beyond our control and we're not abandoned in that space. As Jesus said, we're not orphans in that space. The spirit is there and the hope that we have before us is as strong and as bright as ever. John gave me permission to talk about a conversation that he and I had in the car yesterday. We had 24 hours away at Clayton Bay while Fiona had her retreat. And just when I thought John was dozing in the car, he asked me a question. He says, are Grandma and Grandpa are in heaven yet? So we spoke about heaven and the promise that we're never alone. Jesus will be with us. And yes, Grandma and Grandpa are with Jesus in heaven. And there was a pause and the grandma, grandpa still feel pain? And I said, no, they don't feel pain anymore. And John said, beautiful little phrase, are they happy? Remember saying that, John? That is a profound, life-changing hope that we have before us. It changes everything. And we have it in Jesus' own words to us. Because I live, Jesus said, because I am resurrected, you also will live. This is our future. It struck me, you know, it's the familiarity of the word sometimes we can move on from them a bit too quickly. This is the one truth that Paul affirmed that says if we are to understand the gospel, we need to hold fast to the resurrection of our Lord. It is a living hope and the hope that is before us is stamped in his own promise. That makes the world of difference. As we do celebrate, and as we do celebrate next week, the great story that we affirm from one generation to the next, not just in this building, but in the community that is gathered together, it is in their faith and hope that we count ourselves now and hold first. The one thing that holds us together across the generations is the assurance of the forgiveness of sins and the life of the resurrection of the dead.
Amen. Amen.